Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA steering group the Mount Alexander Shire Council and Main FM 94.9. My name is Lachlan. Um, I was born down in Melbourne at the Dandenong Hospital, but I um, spent a few years in Frankston. That's where we lived. Um, and then we moved up to Bendigo when I was about six years old, I think. Well, I was born in 1995, so I can't even remember what generation that is. So I identify as a transgender male. I don't often outwardly sort of identify myself. Like when I meet new people and stuff like that, I'm, I usually sort of wait to sort of get to know them to see whether or not they're a person that I'd be able to trust with telling them that I'm trans. For, for me, it's um, FTM, which is female to male. I think that's one of the acronyms that has been used. But I don't think it gets used much now anyway. What was childhood like for me? That's a very difficult question in a way. I've got sort of patchy childhood memories in a way. Like I've got a few bits and pieces from when we lived down in Frankston before we came up to Bendigo. Mainly just a few of being in primary school and doing bits and pieces at home. Dad had a motorbike that used to ride around in our yard because we had a big enough yard we we're on like one of those and that's called like duplex boxes where it had like our property sort of at the front unit one or whatever but it was a house and then there was another one sort of just up the hill but we had quite a big area of property that we had so he was able to ride his dirt bike around there so i remember always loving that and um and teaching I remember him te- te- teaching me and my brother and stuff how to ride our bike which is always a typical you hop on the bike and they push you until you fall off and see how far you can get it each time <laughs> Um, I think I did like a term at the Florey Hill Primary School um, in grade one and then I was homeschooled from then on because uh, in the parent-teacher interview the teacher suggested to my parents that I might be dyslexic because I was having difficulties with learning. Unfortunately my parents weren't on board with that sort of stuff and um, put it down to his bad teaching so decided to homeschool me instead which in hindsight yes I got that one-on-one teacher-student dynamic which helped me to be able to learn because I had someone's full attention on me to help me learn it until I got it and stuff like that. But at the same time, didn't necessarily help in other areas, especially socialization and all sorts of stuff. Up until teen years, most of the stuff I did with my brothers, very big Star Wars fans. And because we were all homeschooled, like we just had each other to play with. My older brother was already in school at the time and he was pulled out to be homeschooled as well. But because he'd sort of already been in the pub, like you know, the public schooling, he was pretty comfortable with it. He was pretty familiar, and he had, you know, he already had a group of friends and stuff like that. 
So he opted to go back to, to public school not long after. I think he maybe got a year or two in, and he was like, nah, it just wasn't for him, which is fair enough. Um, but my younger brothers, they did kindergarten, and then they were homeschooled pretty much. So I didn't go to primary school or anything. I think grade four, I think it was like a year after my older brother went back to school, I wanted to go to school because mainly my main priority was I don't have any friends and if I go to school maybe I can make some and it didn't go well at all. Um, I went to Victory Christian College for a year and was bullied terribly <laughs> to the point where I went back and did homeschool because not only were my was my learning and my grades absolutely atrocious but yeah my attempt at making friends didn't go down very well either. So <laughs> yeah, potentially could be could have been something to do with me being trans because it was a, a wrestle with my mum to allow me to have short hair. But I think that year was one of the times I managed to get her to do it for me. So I had short hair. And in that sort of social thing, it was always like, you know, oh, because at the time I was seen as a female, um, trying to make friends with the boys didn't work. So obviously I was left to try to make friends with the girls. But because I was a very tomboyish um, student um, and a lot of the, um, the girls were a lot more into girly things. My attempts at trying to make friends with them didn't really go down sort of well because I also have ADHD and um, undiagnosed autism. And one of the ways of trying to integrate ourselves socially is through masking, which can be to pick up and to try to adapt the social things that you view and observe other people doing. So I tried to talk about the same things they did. I tried to be interested in the same activities, draw the same way they did and things like that to try to fit in with them sort of thing. But they took that as me stealing their ideas or copying them and that sort of stuff. And so they very quickly were like, no, we don't really want you sort of in our friend group anymore. But I think both of that aspect of me being visibly outwardly not looking very similar to them because obviously, you know, I was, what's, what's grade four, like maybe nine or ten or something, I think, looked very boyish to them. And they're like, well, you know, they're a group of girls. They've all got long hair. The uniform for girls, you could either wear like shorts and T-shirt or they had dresses. And then the only time I had to wear a dress was for the frigging um, photo for the school photo because my mum wanted it but I wore the shorts and t-shirt every other time so I was one of the few girls that was only wearing shorts and t-shirt. I think there was just the, both of those dynamics of behaviour as well as you don't yeah, fit in looks wise as well. So I went back to homeschool and homeschooled up until year 11 to 12 and that's when I went to Benigo Senior for those two years. I think I have a lot of cherished memories with me and my two younger brothers, um, being huge Star Wars fans and stuff. We had heaps of Lego Star Wars that we always played. So we would build bases. I remember like we'd use boxes and the doll's house and all sorts of stuff and it would be different planets or different scenery. That was always really fun. We spent ages lightsaber fighting in the back garden as well. Often we'd wait, even wait till it like went dark, even though it'd be absolutely freezing. Uh, we'd go out there just so that we could have our lightsabers lighting up and fighting and stuff like that. That was heaps of fun. Yeah, riding bikes, that sort of stuff with them was always cherished memories. I used to visit my cousin a lot as well. We used to, we were um, only a couple months apart, so we grew up pretty relatively close with each other, which was really good. So I was brought up in a pretty conservative Christian household. So as much as I was allowed to get away with wearing my brother's hand-me-downs and jeans, it was very much pushed on me and expected that I would try to behave feminine and girly. It was kind of one of those, um, a bit of an agreement. Most of the time I could wear what I wanted, but when certain occasions came up that they expected me to behave a certain way, then I they would expect me to. So like church on a Sunday, my mum would always badger me into wearing a dress and doing my hair and absolutely hated it. <laughs> my parents, you know, my dad, he worked pretty much from 7.30 till about 5.30, five days a week. So when we were in Bendigo, probably from when we 
living in about White Hills, which I think is probably from the age of around maybe nine till about 15. My dad was doing up a car in his garage, so he'd go to work pretty much and then he'd come home and he'd be in his shed doing a lot of stuff. And my mum, my mum, she homeschooled us. She did the cooking and the cleaning. And from their rel- religious sort of opinions as well, you know, they had their ideas of what the man and the woman or the, the father and the mother would sort of do in that dynamic. And that was pushed on to me and my brothers. Me, for instance, being the only girl in the house, I was expected to help mum with the cooking and cleaning and housework, yet my Younger brothers weren't, weren't expected to anywhere near as much. There'd be times when um, after dinner, my parents would want me to like pack the dishwasher and to the plates, all that sorts of stuff. My brothers could just leave the table, leave their food on their plates at the table. And there'd be times I remember when I'd been, I'd ask them, be like, hey, can you guys like, you know, at least bring me your plates and empty, you know, your food scraps into the bin and stuff. And I basically just get told, you know, I'll just do it. Like it's not that hard. I don't let them go off sort of thing. So it was a, a weird dynamic because it's like, for me, I couldn't understand why there was this different expectation on my brothers compared to me. If I have to do this, well, you know, at least they can help sort of thing. Can't even get them to do something simple like bring your pots from the table to the bench because I'm the one that gets my head ripped off if I speak up about it. You know, yeah, growing up in, in teenage years, the whole, you know, you're going to start dating boys was pretty early mentioned. So before I even had any interest in boys or girls, it was like, oh, so you're talking to this person. You're trying to, even just trying to make friends because the only so, sort of social outlet I had was my sport, which was soccer and the church. So of course, anytime, you know, you, you make friends with a bloke in the church, it was like, you know, oh yeah, you know, you guys are going to start dating or whatever. Like it was always can quickly jumped on and those ideas put in your head sort of thing because that was an expectation and you're going to leave school you're basically going to find a husband and get married and have kids my dad's other option was going to uni of course because it was either you marry someone who's got a lot of money so you can have a good life or you go to uni study hard and get yourself a good job so you can do yourself it was all pretty kind of old-fashioned man of the house gets to make all the final decisions which in my opinion was just a cop way of not having to take responsibility for anything you know, if I don't have to make the hard choices, then it's not my fault if things don't go the right way or if people aren't happy with it. You know, it's it's his fault. He's the one who made the final call sort of thing. Yeah, because there'd be, there'd be times when I think that parents, no matter gender or whatever, it's really important to talk about the way you raise your kids. You know, you're going to be on the same page about things. They tried to have that, but then there were times when they very much didn't agree on things and they couldn't sort things out. So my dad would say something and mum wouldn't back him up in front of us kids. And then she'd speak negatively about him behind his back sort of thing. But then when they'd have their conversations in secret, she would be like, you know, oh, yeah, I am supporting you. And I know it was very confusing for my dad because he's like, we're having these conversations. You're telling me that we're on the same page. But then when that gets put into play, you're not then following through with us. That was her way of keeping us kids more in her control because she, in a lot of things, would paint my dad out to be the bad guy and she was the good guy. So that was a way of her keeping us sort of closer in relationship to her than dad. But also I don't know how much of it was um, whether or not she didn't feel like she could actually voice her opinion, say things that she wanted because she was expected to be the wife of the house. You know, she was expected to do what a wife should do, which is listen to your husband. So it's a bit hard to be able to know which of the two was actually what was going on. Growing up in a religious household, the things that I was taught was that homosexuality was a sin, you know, being trans was a sin, not that I was given much information or education on the actual genuineness, what it's actually like or what people are like. It was just, you know, that's bad, that's sinful, you're going to go to hell for it. From being a bloody toddler, it was all of this stuff was taught, you were told, that person, they're dressing this way, but they're actually this way, scoff at them and all that sorts of stuff. Um, which I never really understood why. 
the the hard thing that I really struggled with was that I was unable to be able to work out what my own thoughts and my own opinions were aside from what I'd been taught for my entire life, the only things that I've known and the only things that I've been told. So it became a real internal struggle of being able to identify and go, I actually don't feel any negativity towards this person because they're gay or otherwise, but I've been told to act in that way and to be that way. And it wasn't only until my later years and sort of even leaving high school even that I started to be able to actually shift through and find the difference between the things that I've been taught and the things I actually believe. One of the reasons and things that I want to do all this sort of stuff is because I don't want to be an invisible ally. When I first sort of came out or realised that I was trans myself, trying to find information, you know, and the only thing I had was online. There wasn't any social groups in Bendigo. I didn't know there was headspace. I didn't know that there were supports that I could go to. But I think I was also a bit too afraid to go as well. So yeah, you know, relying on the internet to try to find resources and the stories and things that I had found, if they hadn't have put them out there, if they hadn't have told their story, I wouldn't have found them and that wouldn't have I wouldn't have had anything to help me through my journey. You know, so I want to be able to do the same thing, follow in their footsteps, tell my story so that the next generation of people are gonna have gonna have more content, we're gonna have more awareness and positive change for people. My, my dating experience is, is an interesting topic. Being brought up in the, you know, the environment I sort of was, it was very expected of me to date, to find a husband and have kids. But for me, I was, very, I was a very lonely person growing up because you know, not only was I homeschooled and the only social things I did was soccer and church, I had no friends to go and hang out with. The odd time, there was an ex- we had a next-door neighbour and they had a kid around my age, but they went to school, so most of the time... Um, can hang out with them anyway. So I was, yeah, pretty lonely just looking for friendship, companionship, just bored out of my mind. So dating was kind of the next option. It's like, oh, well, if I get myself a boyfriend, then I'm not going to be lonely. You know, I'm going to have a partner, a companion. Even though I didn't really understand or was able to identify my own feelings, quite often the people that I sought for dating was just people that I just had some sort of friendly connection with, you know, we either had a common interest or just got along and I was like, oh yeah, cool, like, well, why don't we date? Because I wasn't given any sort of talk or education on what intimate relations were like, romantic relationships and sex, and I had no clue other than kissing, that was, that's a pretty obvious thing you see, I had no clue, Didn't, no concept that that sort of stuff happened. So we kind of get to a point where I'd either sort of try to seek out a dating relationship, you know, we might hang out a couple of times. Usually it would be like, you know, to go, oh, yeah, let's see if dating could sort of work. But I had a very different idea of what that was. And obviously the other person would as well. We'd go out on like a first date or whatever. And my mum would obviously pressure me to dress really feminine and to wear, you know, dresses and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, immediately I'm going to this first date and I'm not able to be any type of myself. So this person's gone from seeing and interacting me any other day life or whatever or at church when I'm, you know, not necessarily all dressed up or whatever, I'm a bit more comfortable sort of thing, to then being like, oh, I've got to act like a lady now. And I think that very quickly they're like, well, you're not really the same person that you kind of are as a friend. So it didn't really go any further than a couple of dates. And then the first person I really tried to date was a guy in high school who was in the same class with. I think we managed to date for about a week before I was basically bullied by the church to break up with him because he wasn't a Christian. He was probably the first person that I had some 
more genuine romantic feelings for. I was really happy and really pleased because you know he knew that I was a Christian and he understood my beliefs and stuff. Because when we'd obviously had the conversation, I expressed I said, "Look, you know my my religious faith is this blah blah blah," and we're told, "You know you're supposed to date Christians or whatever." And he's like, "Well, you know I don't have anything against you being a Christian. You know if you want to come to church with the old world, but you know that's just not my belief, sort of thing." And I was pretty fine with that. I was like, "He's respecting me for my beliefs. Cool, I get that. Awesome." And then yeah, so I went home to my mum. She seemed pretty fine with it. And then it was literally at church the next time she'd gone and told one of my mentors there that um, I was dating this guy who wasn't a Christian. I purposely wasn't going to tell her because I knew what I was going to hear, which was that I shouldn't be dating. And um, no, I was very, very bullied by my mum and both two of the um, female leaders in the church that I should break up with him. So I did. And it was really devastating because, you know, I think both of us genuinely had feelings for each other. And then sort of the same process as before, tried to just find a companion, friend, someone to connect with, same thing, tried it, didn't work. It's kind of a, an interesting story, it's me and my partner, Rachel, she's an amazing person. So we actually met in high school at Benigo Senior. I got integrated into her friend group from dating one of the other lads who was in there. And then after we broke up, we kind of switched friend groups because I got along more with his friend group. Um, plus, he probably was not happy that I was more friends with his friends at the time, which I can understand that now as an adult. But, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't really get it. You're just like, oh, you're a twat, you know. Uh, me and Rach, we actually met through the friend group and we were introduced because we both loved Doctor Who. And I know um, Rach has always said from day one, from when she met, first met me, she knew that she found the person that she was meant to be with. For me, it took a little bit longer to sort of realise that. Um, we became best friends pretty pretty quickly. I felt that genuine connection to her and that safetyness with her as well, as well as, you know, finding someone to go and do stuff with and someone who wanted to spend time with me, and it was great. And someone who shared similar um, Christian beliefs. Rachel and her family aren't, like, conservative Christians, very accepting of LGBT community and very open-minded and that was another sort of eye-opener for me because something else I'd sort of been told with the church was, you know, our, our view of Christianity is, our view was the correct one. So if other Christians, you know, are accepting of this, but we're not, you know, they're not true Christians. Um, but for me, being able to actually meet and have conversations, which on my end, I was probably more trying to have an argument with them because that's what I'd been told to do was, you know, basically argue your belief to other people. And I know Rachel's were very, very annoyed with some of the opinions I had at the time, which weren't necessarily my opinions, but were more just me expressing everything that I've been sort of told to say. And when I went to school, being able to meet other people, you know, actually start to socialise with the outside world, started to sort of open, yeah, just my thinking and my, my views and everything, you know, starting to experience a lot more things and actually go, you know what, majority of these people at this school aren't Christians. You know, that doesn't mean that they're, that they're all for people or blah, blah, blah. You know, like just all of the crap that I'd sort of been, you know, fed all the way growing up. So I started to realise that, you know, when I'd heard point of views or had these sort of discussions, there wasn't this overwhelming anger in me that, oh, you know, but, you know, you're arguing everything that I believe in. It's kind of like realising that none of this was genuinely from my heart. It wasn't something that I actually believed in. It was like, this is all just information. This is everything. I've just been taught to, to respond to these conversations, but I'm like, I've got no other responses or reactions to what I'm hearing 
or what I'm seeing and things like that. So that started me down the road of being at my, me being a lot more aware of my own thoughts and my own sort of consciousness to be actually be able to go, why am I arguing with my friends about this? Is what they're saying, you know, has it got merit to it? You know, should I actually believe what they say? There's so many different religious organizations that all have a different sort of point of view. All of them are going to think that theirs is the right one, but who's to say which one is the exact correct one? It was a huge sort of, yeah, roller coaster for me, I suppose. But yeah, with yeah, me and Rach, so we, we were best friends. We hung out every day. Um, we kept hanging out and we were obviously best friends still after um, high school. And I tried dating another bloke that I'd met at one of the PYV camps. And he was he was moving very, very quickly. Like we'd only, you know, we'd only sort of met once over like a weekend sort of thing. Pretty quick to go, you know, let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. That's a bit quick for me. I'm still sussing out whether or not, you know, I actually have feelings for you. At that point, because I was becoming a lot more conscious and self-aware of my own feelings and thoughts, I was a lot more aware that other times I've chased blokes going, you know, why can't I find someone? Whereas it was the opposite this time, he was chasing me. And I think that was the first time I was like, is this actually something that I want? Or is this, again, something that I've been told to pursue? Do I want to be with this person? You know, would I have kids with them? I can't really remember sort of how it kind of came, came about, but eventually with that, I realized I was like, I don't want to be with this person. I want to actually want to spend the rest of my life with Rachel. Me and Rach, like, you know, we both had already sort of made decisions ourselves realized that we'd found the person that we wanted to spend our lives with but it was a much more difficult thing than trying to communicate that to each other because even though Rachel was a lot more aware of her own feelings she was also very much aware of my upbringing and being unsure how I might you know whether I would reciprocate those feelings and both of us didn't want to risk our friendship either for me especially it was very sort of new territory I found my soulmate but um, still not being quite aware and being able to identify and sort of name my own feelings to be like, you know, is this person, you know, is my feelings that I'm feeling, feelings of friendship, feelings of romantic, you know, or just that companionship, that just closeness sort of thing. Trying to communicate that was just difficult. So trying to navigate all of these new feelings and emotions as well as wrestling with everything I've been brought up to believe and, and do and all that sorts of stuff, it was really Really big struggle for me. I can't put into words how me and Rachel eventually communicated to each other that we were going to be together sort of thing, but we did in the way that worked for us. Um, and so we started an official couple for, you know, sort of for ourselves. With that obviously came the the challenge of going, okay, so do we tell our families? The funny thing is as well was when it was literally a week after we sort of decided and established, you know, we're going to be together. Uh, I actually went overseas to England for seven weeks on a family holiday. It'd been a week we'd gotten together, you know, partners, and then it's like, cool, I'm gone now. Being overseas with my family is, you know, as excited and as amazed I was to be overseas. And I'd wanted to go to England for, for so many years because my family's background is all English and all that sorts of stuff. So it was all my mum's side of the family that I got to meet. But I was very, you know, just homesick because I was missing Rachel dearly and couldn't tell anyone. And I had my mum and my dad on my back all the time because I was always on my phone messaging Rachel and stuff like that. And I think they started to become a bit more suspicious. It made it just all the more difficult because I'm like, you know, I'm in love with this person and... I know if I tell you, one, I know you're not going to agree with me. You know, you're going to do everything you possibly can to make it so that we can't be together. And also while I was over there, the other thing that I started to come to the realization of 
being able to realize and identify that I was in love with Rachel and that shift in the dynamic of, you know, me going, ah, am I a lesbian? Does, is this something I identify with now? Is this what I am? But it was something that it was, aside from all of the religious sort of stuff, this is when my gender identity started to sort of come out from, you know, being sort of crushed by everything else in a sense, uh, started to sort of arise um, because it had found the space to now because I'd come to the point where all of this sort of stuff I was more open to and able to process and think through and accept about myself. Uh, so now this sort of started to arise because it was like, you know, yes, I'm with Rachel now, but when it comes to boyfriend, girlfriends, girlfriend, girlfriend or whatever, I couldn't find something that sort of made sense for me or that sort of felt right. And I'd, I'd had um, heaps of struggles with my gender identity all from growing up that I didn't have the language for or was able to identify that that's actually what it was. Um, so all those things sort of started to almost start to come into place. As usual, hopped on the internet, trying to find any answers that I could about, um, you know, feeling, am I, you know, this different gender or, you know, am I going through this sort of thing? Um, trying to find anything I could because I was, you know, overseas, I was isolated from, you know, where I was sort of used to being. Didn't know if I could be open with any of the, even the other family members that I was overseas with at the time. Um, and I managed to come across um, a YouTuber who documented his transition and posted it. And so that's pretty much how I stumbled across it was basically being able to watch this person talk about so many things that I'd experienced and it just shed a light on so many things I'd experienced throughout my entire life. You know, I got the language and the terminology to explain things I'd felt. So, you know, puzzle pieces, as you say, you know, were sort of fitting in. I came, I came back home and I told, I mean, I think I told Rachel over Messenger actually when we were messaging each other because I sort of come across it and I'm like, I'm like, I feel like I need to talk to someone about it. So I just messaged her. I think I said, um, I think I've always felt like a boy. I think that's kind of how I started the conversation. And like Rachel, she's watched a few documentaries growing up. So she was already um, familiar with the terminology and a bit more aware there are transgender people and all. So when I was um, when I started to talk to her about it, she already had an idea of what I was um, talking about. Um, but also, once I sort of started to explain the way I'd been feeling and all this sort of stuff that um, I just sort of figured out for her, also seeing me from an outside perspective, being like, I can see that that's who you are as well. If that makes sense. The two big moments that I had with my transition, which was starting hormones um, and then also getting my top surgery as well. Starting hormones, obviously, is it's a journey with that. Like changes don't happen straight away. You know, you could be waiting. You could be waiting a good couple of months, if not six months, to see the slightest bit of change when starting um, HRT. But it's still such a huge moment in your life if that's something that you want to pursue, and not everyone does. And that's completely fair. Everyone's journey is um, unique and different. But getting my top surgery um, and being able to lessen my my dysphoria with my body was just absolutely amazing. And I remember, I remember leading up to it, I used to watch a lot of videos of um, people waking up. They'd be crying because they were just so happy that they finally had their top surgery done. And I was, I think I kind of like over-amped myself thinking I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to be so relieved and so over-the-top emotional about this. And it was a little bit sad because it didn't. I mean, I was pretty out of it because, you know, you wake up from anesthesia and you're a bit groggy. But I can, the thing that I do remember when I did wake up after that was I just, I think it was the first time in a long time I felt just a sense of peace. 
but it's something that I've had to fight for for quite a long time. And even just, you know, trying to come up with the money for it was difficult in itself. It was just an amazing point in my life and it was fantastic. I'm happy now. Like this is just, this feels right. This is the most authentic self I've pretty much felt in my entire life. Is society more accepting of difference today? I would say a lot more than what it has been, but I know that there's still a, like quite a bit to go with things. We can be a lot more out there, you know, and things like that. We can, you know, come out in the workplace. Yeah, work's becoming a lot more accepting. There's a lot more security and safety for people in the workplace. Even in healthcare, you know, all that sort of stuff is improving. You still have a long way to go with things. Um, but I think, you know, compared to what it was five, ten years ago, it's a lot better. You know, if we've come this far, we can keep going. We can always get more accepting. My younger brother said, probably like five, ten years ago, something now. I know he said that when he was, when he had a, a boyfriend that he felt more safe to be able to walk down the street holding hands when he was down in Melbourne than in Bendigo. Whereas I feel in the last couple of years, that's a little bit more safe and comfortable to do so. But then again, with even with me being transgender, I've had a lot of people tell me that unless I told them that I was trans, a lot of people wouldn't know because I don't, I, do, I don't like the idea of the whole who passes and who sort of doesn't. I get the concept because, you know, even as myself, um, coming out as trans and going through the, you know, the physical, mental, social journey of all that is discovering your own identity, but also there's an aspect of I want to be able to pass socially for the gender that I identify with. I want people down the street to be able to look at me and see the gender that I am, not the gender that I was assigned at birth. But then there is a stigma and there's just can, there can be a neg bit of negativity with people who in social standards may not be able to pass as well as other people. And I think it's something that we're trying to move away from as a term. And, you know, be, it doesn't matter if you pass for a cisgender person or not. That's not the point. The point is to be your genuine self and to be accepted and for people to accept you as who you are. You know, me and Rachel walking down the street in Bendigo, we can hold hands. You know, we're not going to, most likely not going to get, you know, a slur or an insult sort of thing at us. But I, a lot of um, friends who I've had who are in same-sex relationships have said, that, you know, that they get comments down the street when they walk and they hold hands. And it makes them not feel like they can hold hands down the street. And it's just, it's awful. It's like, why? Why would we insult people for being in a, in a loving relationship and want to hold hands down the street? Like, it's none of your business. So after I sort of came out pretty more publicly, so most of the church sort of was aware of it, I stopped attending um, mainly because obviously, you know, people weren't accepting it. So I voluntarily went to um, some sort of counselling because at the time when I'd sort of discovered that I was trans and was like, you know, I don't really know what to do because I was at kind of a war with myself of what does this mean for me now with, you know, my faith and everything I'd sort of been brought up to believe. The only sort of thing that I... I thought to do was, well, you know, maybe I'll just talk to someone in the church about it. So they knew me relatively well. And I was like, you know, I don't know who to go to. I don't think I can talk to my parents. And um, she was very much don't really know how to deal with sort of the information that you're telling me or how to help you. So I'll try and find a counselor that we can take you to. Glad I wasn't taken to necessarily a conversion therapist or anything, as some people have. 
but I was just taken to the next best thing, basically, which was a marriage counsellor who is not going to have any qualifications to deal with someone who's having gender identity crisis. Um, but that's who she found. And so they paid for the sessions. We went down for three. I went down to the first one by myself. And then Rachel came with me for the, the last two and uh, had a very big mental breakdown in the last session. The first two sessions was basically them, you know, yeah, trying to get an idea of what was going on, trying to find out everything they sort of could, anything that they could use as an excuse for me and Rachel to be together, anything that they could go, you know, that's the reason why you're feeling this, not because you actually are. And then, yeah, the third session, it was, you can't be Christian or whatever and go down this path. You've got to either choose one or the other. And for me, I found this new whole new world of finally finding out who I am as a person and I finally found you know the love of my life but now I've got to choose between that and literally everything that I've ever known my entire life my upbringing everything it was you've got to choose basically you've you know you can't have both so full full mental breakdown in the session um left very feeling very very suicidal as well which wasn't good but amazingly, on the ride back home, I think I felt fell asleep because I was absolutely exhausted. My partner, I think I mentioned before, um, is a Christian as well. And um, she had had a nap as well. And she remembers the dream she had was, Rachel says that she reckons that God allowed her to have a calming vision, basically, a calming dream, that everything was actually going to be okay. And she can actually recall the, the picture she had of me in that dream was basically as I am now, even though I look very different to the way I was at that time. And so when we got home, you know, she told me that and we just pretty much went from there, you know, but told them I wasn't going to go to the counselling anymore. And I trusted that Rach had the faith and confidence that what we were doing and who we were wasn't, wasn't bad. It wasn't against God. And there was no reason why we couldn't, we can't be Christians and we can't be who we are and we can't be in a relationship. We continued on knowing that you know, it wasn't all going to come cram crumbling down around us and that we were going to make it and we are going to be okay. My parents decided that they were going to try and move back to the UK, which meant moving to Scotland because that was the only place that my dad could get a job in at the time. So me and Rachel were dating and it was like, oh, great. So my parents and family are going to up and move halfway across the world and I can either go with them or I stay. I've now got to move out of home. I've, I've got a casual job at Macca's. I've, I've got no savings. I've got nothing. What the hell am I going to do? And my mum did a very good job at trying to do everything she could so that it made it harder for me to stay. Um, you know, they were selling most of the furniture and all that sorts of stuff, giving furniture away to my brother and my auntie and stuff because my mum was like, if I leave you nothing and make it harder, you'll just buckle and you'll come. So it got to, I think, two weeks before my dad was due to leave. So he was going to go a couple of weeks earlier than what my mum was and mum was going to finish selling the house. And I was severely running out of time because I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll end up homeless. Uh, had had no family members turn around and go, yeah, sure, you can come and stay with us. I'd asked my mum, I said, well, look, I don't feel comfortable asking them straight up because I feel like they're going to feel obligated to say yes rather than be like, look, you know, we're not really sort of able to, but we'll see what we can do to help you sort of thing. I was like, look, can you ask them and say, are you able to help me get set up until I can um, look after myself? And she told me that she'd asked them and then they said no. And then I'd only found out a couple of years later that she'd never even asked them. Rach was working and doing some volunteering 
at an art shed down in Eagle Hawk and the, her mentor who she was doing art with and all the ladies, she's absolutely beautiful, absolutely amazing. She actually asked her and she said, look, you know, we, we don't really have any options. Would you potentially be able to, to let him use a room for a bit? She was like, yeah, cool, no worries. Never met her before. Complete stranger who was like, yeah, sure, I'll give you a room. Moved in with this wonderful lady. I could barely afford rent. I was working casual at Macca's. I had to get two buses and walk for about 40 minutes to try to get to a three-hour shift at work for whatever I could. Three hours might get me, what, maybe 60 bucks. I said I'd try to pay her, you know, 50 bucks rent if I could. It was just no shifts, not, not much work for me. And then trying to buy food, trying to pay for a phone, paying for bus, it, it was very, very difficult. So she was lovely. Like most of the time she said, put the money in the jar. So if I use it, I use it. If not, if you need it, take it, you know? So basically that money ended up being put there for savings when I needed it. And she's been there through me and Rachel's pretty much her entire relationship as well as my entire transition. She's been an amazing person and an absolute amazing mentor. You know, I'm, I'm only here because of Rachel and Linda. If I didn't have them too, I probably wouldn't be here today. If I could have given, even given myself any advice, knowing what I know now, trusting yourself a lot more than what you think you should is really good. You're the only person that's you, you know, you understand yourself more than what anyone else will, even if you don't have the information or the knowledge. Got such a vital tool now, which is the internet. Yeah, we have such access to it. It saved my life, giving me the, all that information that I needed. Probably saved so many other people as well. Use it, ask questions, don't be afraid to try new things. Looking after your mental health, it's still very stigmatized mental health, going and getting help and talking to people. And it, it shouldn't be, it's so important. Looking after yourself, you need to do it. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Me and Rach, even being new renters, how do you navigate a lease? How do you... How do I keep, you know, me, me garden intact? You know, so many people who will be happy to help you out. You know, you don't have to struggle in silence. You don't have to go it alone and think that, you know, oh, I should just be able to figure this out myself. Yes, there's plenty of things that you will figure out yourself. There's no reason why you, you can't get help and why you can't ask for guidance. If you don't have family members to be able to talk to, you've got your friends, parents, you, you know, your coach, your supporting group. There's people out there like Linda. I've never, you know, never met this person before in my life. And she's such an amazing and important person in my life now. Everyone has got their own life experience and their own knowledge and things to give other people. Help your neighbours, help people, talk to people. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. podcast has been produced by Shireen Clow, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clow and Amalia O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or lifeline 13 11 14 
Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800